everyone. Welcome to the Studio Podcast. First of all, just want to say thanks for listening. We are excited to get this podcast up and running. If you are new to Studio, we are a church in Greenville, South Carolina. Our heart is to create a place where God and people meet so beautiful things can happen and beautiful things are created. Thanks for listening. And with that, let's get right to it. Have you ever experienced doing all the right things and you don't get anything? Have you ever experienced doing everything wrong and then you get everything? You know, life is, life is interesting. The, uh, the metaphorical mathematics of life is fascinating to me. You know, we think one plus one equals two. So we make sure we provide the ones to equal two. But if we're to be really honest, life's mathematics, the metaphorical mathematics, one plus one doesn't mean two, it just means something else. So we have to ask the question, how come I, if I do all the right things, I don't get anything, and then if I do everything wrong, I end up getting everything? So we have to ask the question, the, the, the mathematics of that, there has to be a different source code that's producing those results. And I think sometimes in life, especially as, as a people that, that are passionate about our faith, that are passionate about God, that are passionate about being good people, I believe, if not, everyone in this room had the desire to be a good person. And it's interesting because not all good people things don't work out for. And so we've got this, we've got this conundrum, this dilemma where I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, I'm following the commandments, if you will, of Scripture, and yet life continues to produce lemons. But yet we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So, but it's not the excuse to, you know what, I'm not going to care about being a good person, and I'm just going to do the opposite and hope. We don't go there, but it's interesting to me that the results don't always add up to what we give to life. So we have to ask the question, well, what's the source code? What's, what's the math built on? Because if it's not producing the results that we think it should produce, then our entire source code isn't accurate. And I often think that our source code in understanding God isn't quite accurate, and so we just don't understand how this thing actually works. We're all doing our best. There's a great Catholic mystic, his name is Thomas Merton, and he had the great statement, he said, The fact that we're doing our best makes God happy. It's a beautiful, it's a very grace-filled statement. A number of years ago, I was sitting next to an old war veteran, and we were at a crab feed, and it was a fundraiser, and I love crab, and none of my family, my wife does it, my kids do, I really love crab. And so I'm really excited to eat this crab. So I kind of snuck into this big crab feed, expecting to kind of go in, eat my crab, and leave. I just wanted to have crab. And so I sat at the farthest table away, thinking I would end up being by myself. Well, by the time it started, the room had filled up and it was packed out. So it's literally, we are elbow to elbow with bibs and I'm with complete strangers and I'm fine. I'm like, I'm good. I don't need to talk. I just want crab. <laughs> well, I ended up sitting this, this really nice old war veteran and he was very talkative. He, he, he definitely wasn't gonna let me just eat my crab and just enjoy my privacy. He wanted to be in my space. And so we got into this whole conversation. One thing led to another. He finds out I'm a pastor. And in that context, I was a little nervous because of the setting and the dynamic, which I don't need to go into. I was like, 
I, he finally pulled, I said, I'm a pastor. And honestly, part of me was like, maybe that'll make him stop talking. <laughs> Which sometimes that works really well on planes and in restaurants. And I'm a pastor. Okay, thank you. Now I have my space back. It's just made It's pretty powerful. But that didn't do that to him. All of a sudden, he brought up all the existential questions that he had at the forefront of his mind. And he started talking about heaven, getting to heaven. He started talking about what denomination will guarantee that you get to heaven. You know, how do the Methodists really know? And how do the Presbyterians really know? How do the Lutherans? And he was just asking all these questions. And I'm just cracking my crab, just listening to this guy process, essentially, processing fate. He was, and he's obviously at an age where this is something he's definitely thinking about. And then in the middle of this conversation, he, he just kind of stops talking, and I think he realized he was talking a lot. And man, I got a lot of crab in when he was talking. I was just, just chowing the crab. And he asked this question, he said, how do you know God is real? So that's the essence of why he had this long conversation on his own fate. And so in between crab bites, I said, oh, that's easy. And he looks at me and I said, could I hear him talk to me? You should have seen the look on this guy's face. <laughs> that's another conversation killer right there when people think God speaks to you. And I said, oh, that's easy because God talks to me. Now, the conversation could have gone two ways. It could have gone the route of, okay, this guy's weird, he has mental issues, but it didn't. It went the route of he was so intrigued by the reality or the possibility that another human being can hear God. So you have 3,000 years of Hinduism, you have over 2,600 years of Buddhism, you have 1,000 years of Islam, and you have at least a century of secularism, and yet our faith is the only faith that validates human life. You see, our king is personal. The God that we serve is very personal. Yes, he created the cosmos. Yes, he created things that we don't even know exist. But yet he so desires to be in your space, in your life. This is the difference. This is a massive, significant distinction between the Christian faith and most major world religions is that our God is personal. He's not personal in the sense that some people make him out to be. He is incredibly personal in this sense. The Greeks developed four words to describe the word love. Now, again, there's more than that, and some people say, but I think it's safe to say the foundation of our understanding around the word love can, can actually be broken down into these four words. They're not in any particular order, but one of them is phileos, which refers to friendship love. This is the love that you feel towards a friend. When you get together with a friend or your friend and you have this moment with them, there's this, there's this love that's exchanged. You can sense it. You can feel it. It's knowledge. It's experience. It's something you feel in your soul. The sense of like, this is friendship love. And the Greeks called that phileos. Storge, which was protective parental love. So for moms and dads in this room, when your first child was born, Something erupted inside of you that you've heard about, or maybe you never even recognized it exists, but something happened when that first child comes out, and all of a sudden, another dimension of love erupted in you, and this is the thought process, I will do anything for this baby. 
I will give my life. There's not even a question, and I haven't even gotten to know the baby yet. That's storge, that's parental protective love. The third one is eros, is where we get our word erotica from. It's romantic love. It's that sexual, intimate love that we experience in an intimate sexual exchange. The fourth word, the fourth word for love is actually the most important, and it's agape love. It is what they call the love that comes from God. And it's not that it just comes from God. God is love. And here's the dynamic that we have as humans, is if we don't experience agape love, all the other loves get perverted. If we're not actually shaped by the love of God, then our eros love gets incredibly perverted. If we're not shaped by agape love, then our parental protective love gets perverted. It becomes inferior of what it's actually designed and its capacity. And then phileos is friendship love. And if agape love isn't evident, isn't experienced, I'm not talking about head knowledge, I'm talking about experience. The same love that is going between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that communion, that union, if it's not experienced, then our friendship love gets perverted and it becomes inferior of what love is actually designed to do. If you want to open your Bible, we're going to spend our entire time together in the book of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke. It is the third book in the New Testament. And for those of you that um, are maybe rather new to the faith or maybe don't understand Scripture and how the Bible is organized, the first four books in the New Testament is what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all very different. They're all compiled by four different authors. Why is this important? Because the first three are similar in nature, and then they're giving different perspective on their experience of being a disciple and a follower of Jesus. But the Gospel of John, which we're not going to read about, we actually talked about last week. John was a very different character. John was, in a way, he was very caught up in the agape love of God, so much so that he even self-proclaimed, I am God's favorite. When you, ex- when you experience an encounter with Jesus and you walk away thinking you're the best thing that's ever happened since sliced bread, that means you've experienced a measure of love that was actually you were designed for. And that was John. And John was somewhat of a mystic. His language, and especially by the time you get to the book of Revelations, John saw things that no other human being saw. Very, very interesting character. But today we're going to read Luke. We're going to spend our time in Luke. But here's the challenge I have, not I have, but the challenge that we have in reading Scripture. There's so much context, there's so much culture, and there's so much nuance within the Scriptures. And if we don't do due diligence to understand the context, the nuances of storytelling from the perspective and the time and the era that it was written in, then we just simply read over the surface of the story and we don't actually engage with them. And what we can learn through the gospel is Jesus was a master storyteller. He was one of the best storytellers ever, literally to this day. And the challenge is we, when we don't understand the nuances, then thousands of years later, we don't understand what's happening in the story in its depth and its de- uh, deepness and expansiveness because we don't understand the context of which it was written. So today, I'm going to take one story in the book of Luke chapter 15, And we're going to take our time and walk through it. And I want to pull out a few things. But I have to understand, why is this a big deal? Because 
What people, don't want to, what people are not going to understand thousands of years from now is why we get depressed when Chick-fil-A is not open on Sundays. <laughs> They're going to read some, some old post, Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. It will make no sense to them because they don't understand the context, the nuance of why that's a big deal to us in today. Isn't it interesting? I've never experienced a Sunday where I don't want Chick-fil-A. All the other days, I'm like, I don't feel like having Chick-fil-A. But I guarantee you, every Sunday, something in me goes, dang it, I want Chick-fil-A today. <laughs> but someone a thousand years from now, if they don't understand the culture, the context, and the whole point of that moment, it's irrelevant to them when they read that thousands of years from now. So that's why it's important when we read Scripture, we're doing our due diligence to understand the context, the culture, the theology, the story that is written in, because then we begin to realize what's actually taking place in the story. So today we're going to do that. So Luke chapter 15 is actually what I will call the lost chapter. Not that the chapter is lost, but the emphasis of the entire chapter is basically surrounds the word lost. Talked about lost sheep talked about the lost coin, and then it talked about the lost son, which I actually think is a horrible name for the parable that we're about to actually read. I don't think it's accurate. I think it's completely missed the point, and I will talk about that in just a few minutes. But what is lost? Lost is something that isn't where it's supposed to be. When something's lost, And what we will learn through the life of Jesus, what we will learn through his entire teaching and life, is that anything that was lost or fringe or marginalized, it was really important to Jesus. And there's another passage, it's actually in the beginning of Luke 15, it said the 99 sheep were found, but one was lost. And what did the story go as? It goes like this. He left the 99 to go find the one. Now, some of us get offended at that because we're like, what about the 99? And we're going to unpack that a little bit in today's teaching around the lost son. So let's start in verse 11. We'll read a few verses, and then we'll just kind of go from there. Verse 11 of chapter 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, we obviously understand this was written in the Middle East. This is the Jewish context, and Jesus is talking to a mostly Jewish people, although there were melting pot in different places that he was speaking in. But he's speaking in a cultural context. And he decides to build a story. Now, when you build a story, what, make, what makes a story great? There are a lot of important aspects of what makes a story great. But for simplification, a hero and a villain and a compelling conflict or a compelling plot is what makes a good story. I don't know any good movie that doesn't have a point of tension or conflict. And I don't know any good movie that doesn't have a hero and a villain in it. So Jesus, in his effort to try to communicate something that's deeply important to him, he crafts a story around a father that had two sons. One happened to be younger, one happened to be older. The youngest come to the father and said, I would like my inheritance. Now that's somewhat of a foreign concept to Western mind. Although, for me to go to my parents and say, I want what you have set aside for me, it would definitely be premature. 
It may not be frowned upon in Western context, maybe in some family arrangement, but in a Middle Eastern Jewish context, this was incredibly shameful to go to your dad and ask for your inheritance. Essentially, what you were communicating, I wish you would die already so I can get what you've set aside for me. Now, in a normal context, a Jewish Middle Eastern man would never sell what he had to give his son his inheritance. Because you have to understand, they weren't thriving with bank, with cash and stuff stashed away. Their value and assets were in land, in cattle, were in actual good. So in order for the father to give his inheritance away, he had to start selling off some of his assets. So this is quite a procedure, let alone the very act of communicating, I wish you weren't alive so I can get so Jesus already knows the cultural context. No Middle Eastern Jewish father would sell his inheritance to give to his son before he dies. It just wouldn't happen. It's so against the culture and custom. But yet Jesus crafts a story and said, and the father said, all right. Now, the other dynamic we got to understand here is the way the people lived in this era. Most people say they actually didn't live on the land that they owned. They actually lived in what we would probably be more classically called a villa a collection of homes, small home that lived in a little village, and then you would work on your property or your farm or whatever assets you had, your cattle or agriculture. So you didn't necessarily work on your property because that would take up space where you can generate more income. So the context of we're dealing with is we're dealing with people that live in close quarters. You live in a small village. So for the father to begin to sell his assets to give his youngest son's request, everyone in the village knows what's happening. So the incredible shame of the father going against cultural custom to give his son his inheritance. So let's read in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to its fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill the stomach with pod that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, we can pause right there. Some scholars say when he became smart, it's almost like he got his brain back. He almost got his ability to think back. And he would overcome by selfishness, by pride. And when he got to the end of his road, it's like he got his mind back. How many of my father's higher servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. What's interesting about this last passage we read, the motivation for going back wasn't repentance. The motivation of going back wasn't to clean up a massive mess of bringing shame on his family. The motivation for going back was he was hungry. So he crafted a plan. He said, you know what? I'll just go apologize, and at least I can be hired as a servant. And so what he did in his process, and a lot of us do this in our experience, is we go, okay, I need, to, I need to humiliate myself so I can get something that I need. And what did he do? He said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he began to devalue himself, and he began to make the long journey back. They actually said he left his nation to go to another country. And so here we have this story where the son is now coming back. Now let's pick up in verse 20. 
So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now we have to ask the question, why, why did the father, why did he run? Now, for dads in this room, it, it makes sense to us. When your kid is gone and he's coming back, there's sheer excitement. My kid is coming home. Even in a Western context, we'd be like, I'm so happy to be home. I have lots of questions. I have lots of stuff I want to talk about. And we have a lot of coffee appointments coming up here soon. But right now, I'm just glad you're back. That's normal. But we have to understand there's something within this culture that's about to go down if the father does not run towards his son. Now remember, they live in a village, so every day they're probably safe to say that village was up on a little hill so he could look out. So every day the father would look out and see if his son is coming home from all the direction. And one day it became true. And when he saw his son, for a Middle Eastern man to run, they say culturally a Middle Eastern father patriarch never showed their bare legs. And the fact that he ran, man, he had to grab his, his uh, tunic and tuck it in his belt, which exposed his leg, which was so culturally not acceptable. But he could care less. Why? Because there's a tradition when a son abandons his family and they come back. There's a tradition where they get a clay pot and they drop it. And they look at the son as he's coming back into the village and they say, you are now cut off from the family for the rest of your life. It's a custom, it's a cultural tradition to cut off someone that shames their family. And the father knew that. The father knew that was coming. So every day, like, I got to get in front of what culture expects in this situation. So he's looking every day, is he coming home? And today he came home. So he runs out. Imagine the shock. Imagine the people saying, hey, somebody grab the clay pot and let's follow him out there because we're going to do this custom. This is what everybody was expecting. And all of a sudden, they see the father embrace the youngest son, kisses him, holds him, and he's literally been sleeping and eating with pigs. Which is fascinating because in Jewish culture, the touch of pig, you are considered unclean. So Jesus is building this incredible 10 story. He's picking all the no-nos and loading it into one story. He's offending everybody that's listening. And this dad is kissing his son who smells like a pig. And everybody's like, I don't know what's happening here. Should we drop the pot? Is that what we do now? I mean, what are we doing here? This is so confusing. And so they get the pot, and they realize, no, we're not, put the pot away. We're not doing that today. We have no idea what's taking place today. And the father says, get my robe, get my sandals, and give him my ring. And the son's plan was to diminish himself in the eyes of his father so at least he could get a meal. But the dad never let him even finish his plea. The dad said, I'm going to override all of this. He brings him back into the village. And you can imagine the confusion. I know when you read the story, it sounds like a huge festival. It's like everybody's happy. I guarantee you, everybody's like, what's happening here? This makes no sense. First of all, we saw his leg. Did you see how white his legs were? <laughs> did you see how, like, that guy needs a tan? And then, did you, and they're trying to process this whole thing. The festival actually wasn't for the sun. 
It was actually to reveal the Father. So he put the robe on, and he puts fresh sandals, and he put his ring. What the ring signify? When you have the family's ring, you are restored back to your place of authority, your place in the family. We love this story. I mean, this story is phenomenal. We use this story all the time to call people home. And I actually think there's people in this room that you need to come home, but you're, you're still out there, and you're not sure how to go about coming back. But what I love is Jesus doesn't end the story there. He wants to turn up the story. He wants to create another character and bring the character into the story. So let's, let's meet the next character. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had them back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. So the other character comes in the story was not there when everybody had the pot and wanted to drop it and do the excommunication. They, he wasn't there when the father ran and kissed his son who smelled and looked much like the pigs he was just with. He wasn't there when they clothed him with the new robe. He wasn't there with the new sandals, the new ring. And he wasn't there at the announcement of this festival, this party, to reveal who the father actually was. He wasn't there. But you can tell, he probably smelled the grill. He probably smelled the smoker. He's probably like, you know what? I think it's time for me. I think it's time for dinner. So he began to work his way back, but then he hears music. And then he hears singing. And he's thinking to himself, Maybe I forgot someone's birthday. Maybe it's an anniversary. No, nope, nothing's coming to mind. So he finally gets close enough, and he asked, what, what's going on here? He said, your brother came home. Now, this is where things get really intense. So you see, the older son, the story should actually be called Two Lost Sons. And if you want to go another level, it's actually about one father of two lost sons. And it's sad that we made it only about the younger son, but I actually think the older son has actually got significant issues. He's got some significant spiritual dysfunctions. So the older son comes back, and he is angry. You see, I empathize a little bit with the older brother. I empathize with the older brother because the world goes round because of older brothers. They're the ones that clock in every day and clock out every day. They're the ones that keep society actually moving forward. While he had the job, his younger brother had the GoFundMe account. <laughs> and this is the dilemma. The older brother's like, what's the deal here? I've done everything according to plan. I do this, I do this, I do this. And he is angry because he's done everything and yet he doesn't get anything. It's amazing how much our life experiences, especially our spiritual experiences, I've done it all, and yet nothing is at the end of it. So perhaps our equation is completely rooted in the wrong source code. We think, if I just do all these things, I'm going to get, in this case, the fatted calf. Could that became the point of tension? He said, you gave him What? And the fact that the father had to leave the party to go talk to the older brother 
with another level of embarrassment. Here's the dilemma the father was in. He was gaining one son back and losing the other son. He was a hero to one son, and he was a villain to the other one. So the father's out there pleading with the older son, saying, please come back. Your younger brothers come home. And the older brother begins to lay out everything he's done. I've done this. I've read every Bible reading plan on the app. <laughs> every time it notifies me I missed the day, I catch up. I've gone to all the church services that have ever happened in the history of humanity. I've been to all the, com I tithe, I give to missions, I give to building fund, I help in children's, I'm an usher, I'm a parker, I do everything, and yet I got nothing for it. And he does what he did, he shamed us all, and you give him the fatted calf. And the father's response is brilliant. He says, son, all I have is yours. Isn't it interesting that you can be within the, the act of a king and not realize what you actually have access to. Can you, isn't that fascinating that you can actually be in the presence of abundance, but you don't even know it's yours. There's a great story, it's an old story about a cruise ship. A family went on a vacation and they barely had enough money to take the entire family on this cruise ship. So they get on this cruise ship, they had no money to have food, so they basically brought peanut butter and jelly and bread and crackers. They figured, you know, at least we're on the cruise ship, we can't afford a meal, but we're just gonna have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and cracker for the entire vacation. So the week goes by, the last day, the dad goes, man, I, I would like to have one nice meal with my family. So he goes down to one of the restaurants on the cruise ship and asks the host and says, just, just curious, could I see the menu? I wanna just get an idea of how much it costs to eat here. And the host says, I'm sorry, sir, what, what do you need? He said, well, my family been on the ship, but we don't have much money, and we want to know how much it costs to eat in this restaurant. And the host says, sir, once you're on the ship, everything's for free. I wonder how many of us are on the ship, but we don't realize that we have access to abundance. We have everything that is his is actually ours. So we have a dynamic here. We have, we have the younger son. And we have the older son. And what's interesting is that the older son's faithfulness actually ended up being unbelief. His faithfulness was actually unbelief in his dad. I have to do all this to get something from my dad. So our faithfulness to God, sometimes it's just coming out of we don't believe he's that good. We don't believe he actually values my life. We don't believe he cares. We believe he's some God stuck in the cosmos. And so if I just do these things, I'll just slip in whenever the last second ticks. And that's the problem right there, is that we live our lives earning something that we were never designed to earn. I'm going to end with this. Now, every great story has an end. And Jesus, in his brilliance, doesn't actually end the story. He ends it right there. All I have is yours. Do you know who he's talking to? He's talking to anybody that's listening, that's obvious. 
but he's actually addressing the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were there in that moment. He's looking at them in the eyes saying, I am gaining a son, but am I going to lose you? I'm getting sinners, tax collectors are coming home, but am I going to lose all the religious leaders? And he basically says, you decide. So my challenge to you today is how did this story end for you? How did this story end for you? Do you resonate more with the younger son or do you resonate more with the older son? Do you resonate more with, you just made some really poor decisions in life, out of pride, out of selfishness, out of whatever it may have come from. And you're trying to figure out, how do I get back? I just want a meal. And so you're plotting how to diminish your own value, hoping that the Father will accept you back. And what you will find out, God will get in front of every cultural norm to avoid you being excommunicated. Or does the older son resonate more with you? You spent your life being faithful, thinking if I'm faithful, then one plus one equals two. If I do these things, then I'm good. So I have to ask the question, what's the source code of our mathematics? It is definitely not one plus one is two. Especially when one plus one produces something else. What's the source code? It's him. God is the source code for all mathematics in the metaphorical sense of human experience. He understands where you're at. He understands the nuances. He understands the human struggle. This is why when Jesus lived for 33 years, he got to experience what it's like to be a human being in a broken world. So he knows exactly what you're up against. He knows why when you commit adultery in this culture, the next step is you get stoned. So what did he do? He created a place of refuge for that woman. He was protecting. He understood the human experience. So the source code is what? It's him. All things are rooted from him. And you'd be amazed that what you do in your life actually doesn't lead you to him because when you say yes to him, you're already in him. So the question is, are you working towards grace or are you living from grace? Why don't you stand? listening to today's talk. If you're interested in learning more about Studio here in Greenville, you can check out our website, studiogreenville.com, and you can give us a follow on Instagram. Our handle is studio.greenville. Have a great week.